Today you'll meet Eli Ingraham, impact shaman and daughter of change. Eli has been involved in some form of social justice and social enterprise most of her adult life. Eli is passionate about working for the common good, promoting regenerative leadership, and expecting bold action from business, government, and civil society to create a world based on shared respect, responsibility, and prosperity. Eli started her career in finance and technology and ran her own advisory company focused on digital acceleration. She worked at PBS and NPR, developing digital media startups, then moved to digital innovation for Fortune 50 companies. Her work at the Young Presidents Organization and Facing History deeply immersed her in social impact work, particularly around leadership, sustainability, and human rights. Until recently, she led Thai Global Artisans, aimed at alleviating poverty and preserving the cultural heritage of African textile weavers. Currently, Eli is the CEO of Team Sager, a family foundation committed to humanitarian efforts in conflict zones around the world and to elevating authentic voices. She oversees programs in India, Nepal, and Bhutan with the Dalai Lama, combining Western science with Eastern Buddhism in monastic curriculum. She also oversees a microloan program in Rwanda, supporting thousands of women on both sides of the genocide who agreed to go into business together as a means of healing that nation. We'll be getting to know Eli while discussing, among other things, systems theory, awareness-based change, and the most important role we have as humans right now, walking as illuminators. To quote Eli, leadership means living in the now, between those who came before and those who come after, in the enduring work of human progress. It means doing something without guilt and without excuses in service to people and planet. Welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. My name is Marie Sola, and I'm a firm believer that women and girls play a major role in creating change for our future. This podcast tells the stories of the women and girls who are creating that change, each in their own unique way. Every day is an opportunity to blaze new trails and set positive change in motion. The possibilities are endless. Let's get started. Eli, welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. We have a lot of really cool stuff to cover today. So thanks for coming on with me. Oh, thank you, uh, Marie, for that kind introduction and for even inviting me here today. Uh, you know, while I don't think I deserve being called an impact uh, shaman, uh, it actually has a really nice ring to it for all of us. So thank you for that. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're an impact shaman, and it's the Daughters of Change podcast, so I can say that. 
I get to call you that. Your daughter change and an impact shop. <laughs> My best friends call me whatever they want to. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. We get that covered. Mm-hmm. No, but this is this. I'm really excited about this podcast because a lot of what we're talking about is just so fascinating, and it's really going to make people think. And if there's one thing. I want to do with this podcast is have people maybe scratch their head at three in the morning when they wake up and go, hmm, I never thought about that. So I think we're going to do that with this podcast. <laughs> Either that or they'll be very confused, <laughs> scratching their head. <laughs> but they'll still be thinking about it. <clears throat> that's a, that's a right? good thing. Yes. Thank right? you. And, you know, the, the intro I read for you that people just heard is incredible in itself. But what is something people would be surprised to know about you that wasn't in that intro? Oh, you know, daunting question for you to start (laughs) with, but, you know, that won't stop me. I think I'm going to say it's that I'm a fraternal twin, just because I can't imagine they would know that about me. And I share it because the more I thought about it, the more I thought it related to our conversation. You know, it took me... Uh, many years to realize that being a twin actually meant that I've never known existence uh, other than being in the context of relationship. Literally from the first moments in the womb, I was with somebody. And I thought, wow, that really kind of means something. And even though growing up, I struggled with this uh, twin star destiny in terms of Uh, forging my own identity, I've actually come to see how powerful a dynamic it is in terms of shaping how I walk uh, in relationship to the world. Wow. You know, it's really fascinating um, the way you just put that into context because probably people know at least one set of twins, but I never really thought about it that way. Like you've always been in relationship with somebody from the womb. Mm -hmm. Like being alone or, uh, you know, while I'm happy to be alone uh, is it it actually feels sort of unnatural to me. Yeah. I I can, I can imagine why though that that's all right. That's really cool. So right there, that's something that people are going to think about at three in the morning. Let me tell you, Eli. Already we've started. We've already given people things to think about. Right on. <laughs> and so on that note of, you know, always being in relationship with somebody, being a fraternal twin and all the other things we're going to talk about, what is it that you see your personal role in life as? You know, like everyone, it's to find my place, you know, wherever it is and at whatever it is in the daisy chain of human existence, really. Uh, you know, uh, and sometimes finding our purpose is just too abstract to contemplate. But sometimes when I think, you know what? Millions have come before me. They imparted their wisdom. They left a trail to follow. So all I have to do is find the path and join my kindred peeps and start carrying the water or making the fire or whatever that, you know, is that needs to be done to make sure that millions come after me. So when I think about it like that, it makes it a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, because that can be, that can be a little bit of pressure. Like what's your purpose? Right. Right. You know, do I have a purpose? Do I have to have a purpose? What is my purpose? And on that note, I'm going to um, ask you yet another taunting question about that purpose. So, <laughs> so you, ha- I mean, really in talking to you and as people will, here as we continue on with the podcast, you really have figured out a lot of your purpose in life. So was it something, was there like an illuminating moment or was it a gradual realization? 
Well, look, some are blessed with that awareness early on. I was not one of those people. I knew I had a sense of purpose, uh, you know, baked into my spirit and in my, in my heart at a young age, but I really didn't know where or how to express it. And, and so this vagueness combined with an incurable uh, curiosity made my whole self-discovery an arduous process of elimination, if I'm going to be perfectly honest rather than a directed path. And I'll add that some early trauma also made it um, harder for me, I think, and I had to really work through some uh, deeper healing in order to find my way. Um, and I also cannot underscore the importance of guides in our lives, whether they're teachers or therapists or, or caring uh, adults. And for me, it was characters in books and movies that um, in the absence of them in my real world, I kind of created them from uh, fiction and even nonfiction. And uh, these sort of guides helped me find my purpose. And looking back, you know, I'm so, so grateful for them. But I will say that um, I came up as a professional in the 80s, and it was a really dystopian time. You know, we were losing friends to AIDS every day, and we were in really an unrelenting grief. Um, but I also remember you know, going to anti-nuke rallies, you know, with Helen Caldicott and re reproductive rights protests with Gloria Steinem and many other feisty gals. And uh, I remember it being a time where we started celebrating other women like Sandra Day O'Connor and Sally Ride as two really exciting female firsts. But, you know, back then the language of social impact or social enterprise as a practice hadn't really emerged. Um, for me, when the personal computer arrived on the scene, I knew technology was going to dramatically change our world for better or for worse. And it was then that I left finance to build uh, microprocessors and learn coding at MIT for two years. And at the time, it felt like I was just chasing uh, shiny new objects. But uh, unbeknownst to me, I was also chasing my purpose. And if I had to say in a nutshell, um, it was like social code led to social technologies, led to social media, to social communities, which led to social enterprise, and then that led me to social impact. And, and, and it's clear to me now, but it seemed incredibly circuitous and fragmented at the time. But, you know, every uh, detour somehow led me to greater clarity. And sometimes I took deliberate detours. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, for the first 15 years of working, I actually took every fifth year off deliberately and traveled usually alone, just with a backpack, and I, I just needed to walk the earth, I, I wanted to see other cultures, and I wanted to um, broaden my perspective, and it, and it calls to mind one of my favorite quotes by Mark Twain, who said that travel is fatal to prejudice, uh, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. I just, I just love that quote. And I look back now and I think, God, how did I even think that that was a good idea. You know, people thought I was crazy because I was, you know, rising up the ladder and I would leave really good jobs and I would come back and I would get really good jobs. But I'm so, so grateful for taking those moments, those deliberate moments of exploration. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot packed in there with what you said. And there's so much that's true, you know, in terms of, um, and a couple of things that really jumped out at me. One is that, like, 
even if you didn't know it at the time, each move was leading you towards your purpose, right? And I, I feel like that is a path that a lot of us follow because everything we do, there's sort of a serendipity to it. It all kind of leads you to the next place, even if you don't know what that next place is when you see it or when you're in it. Yeah, it's true. And the the guiding light is uh, something within you that if you stay true to, as you make your choices, will get you where you need to go. It's when we're not true to that sort of inner something where we kind of can really uh, go awry. And we all do that too. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, you know, am fortunate at this point in my life to feel like uh, it, it's starting to make some sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I hear I hear you because, you know, being as we're both 39, you look back and you see these things. Right. And it's but it's true. It's like, oh, that's why I did that or that's why that happened. But like you said, you just stayed true to your inner purpose. Yeah. And and I love that quote about travel, by the way. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about social impact because you did mention that that's where ultimately this all led you. So I know that you're a big, actually a huge believer in social impact. And I'd love to hear your definition of social impact. Sure. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't much like the word impact uh, because it feels so hard hitting. You know, it literally means coming into forcible contact with. And, you know, it's true. Our society has been so hard hit. Um, Ironically, so much of the work of social impact is to undo the extractive, exploitive, exterminating, exclusionary, hard-hitting damage that's been done to people and planet. You know, I wish we had called it something like social recovery or social revival work instead. Uh, But that said, you know, there are other ideas uh, emerging like social purpose or like partnerism from Rianne Eisler, like regenerative from Laura a storm among many others like future fit from Jeff Kendall fractal flourishing from Jeremy Lent beautiful expression and these seem far more appropriate to me but um, you know social impact is still one of those translational expressions that bridges both worlds and I think because it's translational it can help people across the spectrum to embrace progress and so it's its translational capacity that make it transformative as well yeah yeah hundred percent I love those I love the new words I particularly like the reimagining and the regenerative is yeah mm-hmm. and what you're saying is so true and why do you think that this area of work is so important and in in general, you know, for the world. And how do you see yourself being a change maker in this arena? So, you know, when you think about what I just said, I think we all want to embody this same translational and transformative ability, you know, as impact shaman, uh, to use your word. And I thank you again for that. It's such, I just love it. Um, Because we're living in a paradigm that's been defined and driven for millennia by a certain logic, and we need to move to an ancient new paradigm driven by an eco-logic, if you will. You know, the one is reductive, Mm -hmm. the other is restorative. 
but, and every generation plays a role in human history, for better or for worse. And like it or not, I think our generation is actually tasked with the future of civilization, literally on that level. Um, I love to cite environmentalist David Brower, who brilliantly mapped 4.5 billion years of evolution against a literal seven-day creation period. And according to his model, uh, humans appeared on the scene 30 seconds before midnight on the seventh or last day. Human language didn't appear until two thirds of a second on the last day. So our generation right now, we're like somewhere at a half a second before we all, yeah, before we all turn into pumpkins, you know, at midnight. Yeah. And so the point is in less than a minute, less than a minute, humans dramatically impacted 4.5 billion years of, ex of existence. And if we can do that without thinking about our actions, imagine what we can do if we put our minds to work in a conscious way. You know, consciousness itself means to co-know or to know together. It implies collective intelligence on all levels, and we, we need to move our consciousness beyond uh, the transmission of data and information and toward the coordination of behavior for the greater good. And as impact doulas, if you will, our work is in helping to birth this consciousness and yeah. to scale this consciousness and to move from collective intelligence to collective action. There you go. A hundred percent. And by the way, the dog agrees about the, the what the humans did. In, Sorry. In, in a minute. Oh, no, that's great. I love it. I think you should bring that dog right into the podcast. We're going to ask some questions. I, is it a, what, what's, the, what's your dog's name? Uh, Jasper. Uh, Jasper McJazzy Pants, the Flying Family Circus Havanese dog. <laughs> So Jasper just wanted to just, you know, put a punctuation mark with what you were saying about the about what we've done to the planet. So, you know, good for you, Jasper. Right. And, and, you know, it, when you think about it that way, oh, my God. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stunning, Crazy. isn't it? It's just yeah. sobering. It is sobering. Yeah. 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 And but I really like what you said, though, is that. If we could do that without thinking about it, imagine what we can do when we put our minds to the opposite results, exactly. you know? And I mean, I think about all the things that as a human race we've invented. We have machines that fly us in the air from place to place. I mean, and that was ages ago. I mean, technology, all these things, if we can if we can create and wreak havoc, we can also fix the havoc. Like mm -hmm. we can create ways oh, exactly. to so I love that positive note on that as well. And, you know, it's interesting because you do hear a lot of companies now, it's, you know, it's very popular to have a purpose statement as opposed to, you know, you know, everybody has a purpose statement. And do you feel that companies actually walk the talk when it comes to their purpose statements? And if not, how could they be doing a better job of making that rubber hit the road? Yeah, great question. And, you know, sadly, not so much <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> oh, let me get into this. Uh, you know, business as a societal construct came into being to make profit, you know, and we're now trying to retrofit a profit model into a purpose model and it's not working. You know, it calls to mind Buckminster uh, Fuller, who said you'd never change things by fighting the existing reality to change something. You build a new model that makes the old 
old model obsolete. And that's kind of what we've got to do, though we've got a gajillion businesses on the planet that we've got to do something with. But, you know, we, we do see a tremendous amount of purpose washing that's uh, taken up residence right alongside greenwashing. And, and the truth is, you know, most systems, whether they're business, political, or civil, that are prevailing on the earth today, have profited from the earth and from the exploitation of people, and they do not want to change because it's not in their self-interest to change. You know, we hear um, these ideas like net zero and carbon offsets that companies are putting forward to give the impression that they are neutralizing negative impact with positive impact, but these are false positives and false narratives. You know, first of all, these positives are being defined by the perpetrators. Second, they're addressing problems of the past, not defining a future fit world. And third, um, they neglect to understand that it's not about doing less harm, it's about doing more good. It's about having a net positive impact on the world. Um, as described by Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, and Andrew Winston in one of my favorite books of the same name, Net Positive. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I asked that question to you tongue in cheek. I mean, you, you probably, I, I don't know if you can see my face, but yeah, I mean, I, and it, not to say that there aren't some businesses that really are walking the talk or really attempting to, but this is a question I think, I don't know, I think a lot of people think about, but, um, how do purpose and profit coexist, and can they actually coexist? Yeah, that's a, it's such a thoughtful question. And, you know, a while back, I interviewed Lorraine Smith. She is totally a daughter of change, somebody to put out there in the uh, future podcast. But she's a leading consultant in this space. And, you know, in the interview, we looked at purpose through the lens of three different companies. We took Unilever for consumer goods, Google for technology, and Shell for energy. And let me tell you, Unilever's purpose, now Unilever is one of the front runners of um, you know, a conscious uh, company, okay, with Paul Pullman at the helm. Anyway, Unilever's purpose was to, quote, add vitality to life through its uh, personal care products. And Lorraine and I had a really good time, you know, exploring the idea of, well, was underarmed deodorant really in service to people and planet? We really weren't sure it was. <laughs> and then we moved on to Google's purpose, which is to organize the world's information. And we were like, huh, I don't know if extracting personal data really qualifies. <laughs> is organizing the world's information. Then we moved on to Shell, and don't get me started on fossil fuels, but you're going to love this. Their purpose is to power progress together. Somehow I don't feel like anyone on the planet feels like they're doing that. You know, so, you know, take me back to your previous question about are they walking the talk? You know, a whole bunch of recent corporate reports just came out, reports by the energy and drug and tech companies, giving them all you know, themselves, all these great ESG ratings and ESG is environmental, social, and governance metrics. And you got to wonder, like, what? How can all the companies causing the problems all of a sudden be doing really well at, at ESG? You know, so there are very strong forces trying to make the old world order look like the vanguard of the new world order and to keep existing power structures and profit makers in place, you know, to maintain the status quo and to make sure the future stays unevenly distributed, to, you know, quote our pal William Gibson. And, you know, as Lorraine and I were exploring, the only question business leaders should be asking themselves is what I do 
in service to people and planet? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. And for new companies, entrepreneurs coming up with cool ideas, they should still be asking that. Is this in service to people and planet? And the only question we need to decide when deciding where to work uh, or spend our resources is, is what they say they do, their purpose, what they're actually doing, their practice. Are these two things in service to people and planet? And if the answer is no, then we have our answer, right? Yeah. So to your specific question, it's not that purpose and profit cannot coexist. It's that the economic model put forward by um, Milton Friedman in the 1970s, which is still driving global enterprise, is deeply flawed in its elevation of profit as purpose yeah. in the pursuit of growth at any cost. It's not that capitalism itself is bad. You know, in fact, some of my favorites, D. Hawk and Paul Hawken, have this great expression, capitalism is a good system. We should try it sometime. <laughs> and, you know, but it's that the, the true nature of capitalism, like nature itself, was co-opted and maladaptively exploited to benefit only a few at the expense of people and planet, not in service to people and planet. Yeah, well said, because you know what? It's not the ism. It's the people in power, people with greed. Um, that take the ism, the capitalism, and and make yeah. it what it's really not a, about. And I, I will say that younger people, um, you know, the millennials and even like the Gen Z, they really look at companies now before they work oh, yeah. there or before they purchase. Like the days of like, my mom used this detergent, so I'm going to use this detergent are long gone. So companies... It feels to me like if companies don't get on board, they're going to be left in the dust. You know, it's true. And and thankfully, uh, the consciousness of, you know, each subsequent generation sort of gets brighter and larger. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, each generation is still a little bit hostage to the prevailing uh, worldview. And, and we'll talk a little bit later about how that's probably one of the most important things to, to be aware of. Yeah. Do you have an example or some examples of how business can be redesigned to be successful with both purpose and profit? Uh, You know, I mentioned uh, Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston's book, uh, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. You know, these two, among many others, are far more qualified than I am to answer that question, but it won't stop me from putting forward uh, a few ideas. So, um, so the idea of giving more than we take, first of all, which is really the essence of being net positive, let's face it, it goes back to the most ancient of wisdom. So let's start by acknowledging that, right? That's not a new idea, but it's a really smart idea. So in their book, they also talk about how companies can and should do a number of things. One is to just stop creating more problems, like just stop. Like if you're polluting waterways stop if you're creating you know uh, nuclear waste and you can't figure out how to handle it well then stop so that's a good thing uh number two is they really should be deeply aware of improving the lives of all they touch and this means their suppliers their customers their employees their communities like really think beyond themselves And along that line, three, they should take ownership of uh, the social and environmental impact of their business and be truly accountable and transparent. Four, they should innovate to be better. 
you know, it, they should channel Maya Angelou, who said, when you know better, do better. Yeah. Uh, you know, we give all this praise to innovation, but like we should be innovating to be better. And then five, uh, they should actively partner with their peers and stop being so competitive. They should partner with the civil sector and with governments to really drive transformative change. So that's a set of things that they put forward. Uh, I think it really comes down to companies being bold, really having that courage that they talk about, breaking ranks and being willing to do things that the old models actually don't address, but they also don't justify. Companies keep uh, being held hostage to having to justify their existence according to old models. But um, instead of thinking in terms of what they're doing wrong, uh, company leaders might do better by thinking in terms of what's missing from their policies or practices or portfolios, because then maybe they'll be a little less defensive and they'll be able to start uh, you know, doing uh, more work. And you see this starting to happen in the DEI space, right? Uh, where they're seeing like, wow, what's missing in the boardroom here? Maybe it's women you know, and people of color. Maybe that would make a difference. <laughs> Imagine and, that. And they're starting to take responsibility for it and they're starting to take action, but this needs to happen in you know, a much broader way. And, and they would probably do better if they saw themselves less as a hierarchical figurehead and more as sort of fellow journeymen, you know, on the journey of uh, civilization. And they fundamentally need to break free from the tyranny of short-termism. You know, it's short-termism that drives their strategy and their stock prices. It's like they don't even see the internal conflict between um, long-term disabilities on the balance sheet and and yet short-term uh, investments, you know, and these things take an inexorable toll on uh, externalities like nature and future generations. And so uh, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if companies were required to have young people on their boards and advisory councils, you know, as a constant reminder of long-termism? Because what better way to make that a priority than to have the future of humanity sitting in the room, you know, yeah. right while you're making decisions? Yeah. And I think companies are starting to understand. I know uh, in December 2020, I think McKinsey published a very interesting article connecting um, business purpose with employee purpose and that companies that were starting to uh, get that were doing better. You know, this survey said that something like 44% of employees uh, felt their companies hadn't activated their purpose and that um, their company's purpose wasn't aligned with their purpose, you know? And so an interesting idea some companies have started doing is eliciting stories of employees' proudest moments of working at the company. And this is sort of elevating meaning um, within their purpose. So that's kind of an interesting thing, because as we know, plans, uh, you know, might inform, but stories inspire. So lots of things they can do. Yeah, and, and, and you know, maybe in a roundabout way you've talked about this, but I want to just kind of dig into this a little bit more because this is a really kind of a fascinating question to me. But do you think that businesses and consumers, so I want to put consumers in that mix, need mm -hmm. to change their mindsets about how we view business practices? And if so, how? You know, yeah, I, and a huge question, you know, and I'm going to give it my best here, but, you know, I only know what I know. Um, back to the idea of collective intelligence, I 
believe we need to advance new models of commerce and new models of consumption, you know, and we see this happening. We see it in John Elkington's model of regenerative capitalism and Kate Rayworth's donut economics, in Sisodia and Mackey's conscious capitalism, the circular economy, the caring economy, I could go on. But so there's all these exciting new models coming forward and, and they acknowledge that our economies are embedded within nature they're not external to it. And that's a huge, you know, mind shift, right? Uh, and they uh, put forward that the true cost of doing business includes a lot of things not currently uh, included on the corporate balance sheet, like child care, like elder care, like education, uh, health care, uh, domestic services, you know, not to mention nature. Trees should have a value, you know. Waterways should have a value. And if we included all the cost of those things, I, I assure you, you know, their profit margins would go way, way down. So we've got all these businesses who, you know, led with profit and are now sort of forcibly backing themselves reluctantly into purpose. But these new models put purpose first and then derive profitability through a much more honest accounting and assessment. Uh, and they take into account the cost of nature and the cost to nature and the contributions of uh, multiple stakeholders, not just a few uh, investors. But the important thing about these models is that they advance a holistic, uh, resilient systems approach that balances the needs and capacity of business people in the environment. Uh, but the truth is, we need more than new economic models. And to your question, we actually need way more than just a change in mindset, though both of these are absolutely needed. But I would say that, you know, our minds are already aware that we have surpassed four out of the nine uh, planetary boundaries required to prevent total collapse. Uh, our minds know that we're not on track to reduce global warming to less than two degrees. Um, if, you know, a, a change in model and mindset isn't creating change fast enough and business as usual isn't going to get us there. And the sad reality is change as usual isn't going to get us there either. I mean, literally, if we're going to save civilization, we need a colossal collective breakthrough of consciousness that breaks open our will to act around a shared vision. Like I, yeah. I can't say that enough. It's about um, a collective breakthrough of consciousness to break open our collective will and have a shared vision. Yeah. Because what we're experiencing is really an existential crisis. It's a crisis of morality in terms of ethics and values and of psychic well-being. I mean, we are experiencing a breakdown of coordinated free will. Yeah. There you yeah. have it. it. Well, it's true. <laughs> and, and, you know, that whole idea of collective action and collective consciousness and contemplative thinking. And so while that is greater than a mindset shift, we have some people that just like aren't even on the train with the fact that there is global warming. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, that's a, that's another podcast. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> back that a little yeah, well, another time. Well, yeah. But what is regenerative thinking? Okay, so sort of taking the thread from the uh, 
the last question. You know, we want to move forward with the people who are on board. You know what I mean? There's always early adopters. There's always some who get it before others. And so that's where the push has to be. And so with respect to regenerative thinking, um, you know, simply put, uh, I like to say it, it's the combination of all the RE words you could ever think of. <laughs> Restore, repair, rejuvenate, reinvigorate, revitalize, renew. I could go on, right? So my friends yeah. laugh at me. I'm like, yeah, let's, oh, we're having another RE discussion. Um, but these words hold hope and resiliency, you know, another RE word that I love. But sadly, they also denote that something has to be brought back. You know, it has to be redone or returned because something went awry. And there's a certain amount of sadness I, I hold around that. But I believe um, regenerative thinking is really about a having a profound understanding of the cycle of life, a deep respect for the interconnectedness of life, and a transcendent responsibility for ensuring the future of life. And we see the pentimento of these truths in ancient wisdom, you know, uh, in indigenous cultures and in many sacred teachings, but they were crudely painted over by reductive, mechanistic, even scientific schools of thought, right? And so in the social impact realm, uh, regenerative thinking um, actually goes far beyond the idea of sustainability. And I'm not sure if your audience, you know, what they think about that, but if we took a tour through the various stages of recovery that impact folks sort of think about, you know, the first stage was uh, degenerative, you know, it was the exploitation of human and natural resources. And then we moved to kind of the green movement. You know, we remember that we started to recycle and pick up trash and we did oh, a yeah. little less negative impact. And then it moved into the sustainable period and we're kind of there. And sustainability is about really yeah. um, not increasing harm, but we want to move toward and we see the early movers already moving into the restorative period where where humans start doing things um, kind of to nature. We're, we're tweaking biodiversity, we're, we're, we're doing that, but the, where we want to get to is the regenerative uh, phase where it's humans being aligned with nature, with nature. So, yeah. so right now I think, you know, we're with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals that came out in 2015, and they were approved by world leaders as the universal framework for tackling the world's most pressing issues. And while they're not perfect, they provide a sort of a galvanizing charter uh, for business and government and civil society to get behind, you know, and to try to align efforts towards a better world. Um, but still, they're more about fixing the past, which is not a bad thing, uh, but they're not so much about putting forward the systems of what we would want to consider a future flourishing world. So, um, the SDGs are now pretty much a household name. It's awesome. They're being taught in schools, also great. They're being adopted by businesses. Uh, but the truth is they're still not affecting change fast enough or on a scale large enough to turn things around by 2030 or 2050. And, and you know, we, they keep moving the goalposts because the inertia of the status quo is still yeah. greater than the ideal of shared prosperity. Yeah, it's kind of like putting the Band-Aid on the issue as opposed to curing it. And I mean, we have to treat the issue, but we need to 
think about what's the cure, get to that next step. Right, right. Yeah. And how is that different from system theory? You know, my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you were going to like this question, Eli. One of the things I love to talk about, because it was so important for me, and it is the the thread that connected when I talked early, early on about um, staying true to that, whatever it was within that, you know, would direct you in your path. It ended up for me being systems theory or a systems view. And so uh, it was something um, that emerged among scientists in the 1920s and 30s, though its origins truly go back to um, much earlier societies, certainly to ancient Greek and, and Chinese philosophers. But essentially the systems view of life sees life as a holistic, interdependent, cohesive group of parts, whether they're natural or human-made. And it's really at the core of a more common expression, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The parts, while important, only exist uh, within the context and construct of the whole system. And so when I encountered systems theory after college in Freehoff Copper's book, The Turning Point, it was a turning point for me, a huge uh, turning point. And I remember watching his brother Bernd's uh, movie, 1990 film, Mind Walk, which is still my favorite movie. Uh, and Mind Walk was, uh, it, it followed a scientist, a politician, and a poet as they talked in and around Mont Saint-Michel about quantum physics, basically. And and their perspectives were so different and so fascinating. I encourage everybody (laughs) to watch it. But anyway, um, those things really finally helped me see the world in a sensible way. And uh, why you know, systems theory really isn't being more broadly taught and being talked about and being shouted from the rooftops. It's, it's like mind-boggling uh, to me. But um, as we look back in history, systems theory has sort of swung back and forth, like scientific conceptions of life have swung between sort of the, the Newtonian, Cartesian, uh, mechanistic view and the more systems uh, view back and forth. And fortunately for us right now, the pendulum is swinging in the right direction and at the right time. And we actually have uh, technology of all things t- to thank for that because it was not until computing, and this is where my foray into computing was really interesting because it wasn't until computing unlocked nonlinear equations that uh, science and technology could actually mathematically prove what everybody already knew, uh, that the world was a complex series of networks and patterns with interdependencies and intersectionalities. But now scientists and mathematicians could you know, see what our ancestors already knew. It's like they rediscovered fire. I like to say it, they, they had become reconscious. <laughs> Another B word. Well, I know. And so now, though, what's exciting to me is that technology, systems theory, and social impact are all in sync. And so previously unimaginable things are now possible. And I've even, you're going to love this, I've even heard this period that we're in now being called the Renaissance. Oh, very cool. Right? I and love that. Isn't that, it's like one of my yeah. new favorite. It's in like every profile on social media that I have. So even our theories of change are changing, you know? Yeah. Even though our modern political and business agendas don't really see all the interconnections, people are. People like us, a shift is happening. Yeah. And even uh, those in charge are starting to see that this is less sort of this 
evolutionary, uh, competitive, winner-take-all survival of the fittest. That's not going to get us where we need to go, right? <laughs> and so we see this sort of um, democratization in all its forms, whether it's decentralized governance or distributed ledgers on the blockchain or citizen journalism or protest movements. All of it is all the regenesis, and so that's what gets me excited. Yeah, that is. I love that word. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I, I, I'm gonna use that word in a sentence today. I'm gonna go upstairs and I'm gonna tell my husband. Have you heard of the regenesis? I'm, I'm gonna start using my, that word. I love that word. My work here is done. Yes, that's really. it. That, we, you know, and then he's gonna tell the next person, and so on, and so on, and so on. And by the way, that Mindwalk is one of uh, my husband's favorite movies too. Oh my god, yeah. he's like the one other person on the earth. That oh, it's a great movie. It's a great. This movie. It's a great cast too. Oh, phenomenal! Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. So, right. It, so you should watch it if you haven't watched it, especially if you want to contemplate. It's totally. it's a really good movie. And how do we successfully exist as individuals who are separate from the system? Well, you know, my answer is going to be that we don't and we don't want to because we're not separate from the system, at least not from a systems theory uh, perspective. And to be honest with you, if we think like that, um, we're kind of replicating the great separation. You, you know, you can think of the divide that occurred uh, between heaven and earth, between mind and body, between human and nature, between individual and community, right? And so I don't think we want to um, separate, we want to reconcile. And because yeah. uh, the separating kind of perpetuates this kind of zero sum consciousness instead of something I learned recently of ma to ba uh, consciousness. And let me explain that. I recently took um, this wonderful course on awareness based systems change. And in this one class, we were asked to observe a Japanese tea ceremony. It went on for an hour. <laughs> I was like, when do we get the tea? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, like totally projecting this impatient Western, you know, tiny little reptilian brain. Anyway, it was, we had, the purpose was we had to watch an intricate, exquisitely detailed ritual that was designed to move all those present gradually from a ma, which is the individual space, to a ba, which is a shared space. And it requires intention, it requires patience, it requires an open desire for connection. And so it was about becoming more aware of the relational field that surrounds us, that we impact and that impacts us. And so as impact ninjas, you know, impact shaman, um, it's an essential practice for us to learn, especially in the West here. Um, if we're going to inspire people to move from individual complacency to consciousness to coordinated free will. Yeah. It's it's really, you know, it's almost like getting out of your head and coming from your heart, if you will, or or your thinking, you know, your heart center, not you know, not to say that you don't use your mind or you don't think or you don't process or have individual thoughts, but it's about stepping back from the ego a little bit. Yes, and stepping toward and into integration. You know, it's head yeah. and heart. You know, it's mind and, and body, yeah. spirit. and You know what I mean? It's this notion of integration. And so many of the systems on the earth today, that prevailing sort of dominant view, 
is so fractured. It is just about the parts. It's about the atomization yeah. of existence instead of the integration yeah. of existence. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and, and what do you feel right now today uh, the biggest roles that we have as humans are? You know, to take our place, certainly, wherever it is, like I said at the beginning, but there's some things we can do to, we, we can stop doing, you know, sometimes it's easier to do that, you know, we can, uh, <laughs> yeah. as a starting yeah. point, I mean, we need to stop being surprised, caught off guard like we were with COVID. We know shit is going to happen, so we should not be surprised. We should be prepared. Um, another thing, we need to stop worshiping novelty um, you know, mostly technology over ancient wisdom. You know, all, everything we need to know is already there. Um, we need to stop waiting until the brink of disaster before we take things seriously. Uh, we need to stop losing what is precious before we have gratitude and appreciation, right? And, and you've heard me say this before, we need to stop living complacently and unconsciously within mm -hmm. the dominant worldview. You know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist and I know I am preaching to the choir in terms of your audience, but uh -huh. I'm going to say it anyway. Yes. You know, healing the world is an inside job and we have to become internally aware. And when the scales of tolerance and acceptance of the old system fall from our eyes and our consciousness awakens to a new vision of reality, we have the clarity to then move outward, to recognize others who share the vision and to move into collective action, but it's kind of got to happen that way. Uh, remaining silent, doing nothing, staying behind the veil of numbness is what moves the boundary of tolerance toward mutually assured destruction, right? And we cannot continue to participate in this. It, it, um, it calls to mind uh, that song, The Sound of Silence. I'm sure, uh, you know, we, we all... Mm -hmm embraced it but like think of the, the words like in the naked light i saw ten thousand people maybe more talking without speaking hearing without listening because no one dared to disturb the sound of silence right and so we know things are not good we know we're not doing enough we need many to many actions at the core and at the edges of humanity. We need to see 10,000 people, maybe more, disturbing the sound yeah. of silence. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh my God. It's like, a, preach it, Eli. You know, I, I love it. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited. This is such a great conversation. And my friend Wolf would say, if two things that uh, I just thought of, and I, I have to connect the two of you because I, I just want to be a fly on the wall and listen to your conversation. It'd be <laughs> fascinating. Um, but if you want to change the world, you have to change yourself first. So that's what you said. Go inward first so you can bring it outward. And the other thing is we're addicted to being average, meaning that we do stay complacent. We're just addicted to being average rather than thinking and taking the step outside of it, having those deep contemplative conversations with yourself, you know, and with other people. So it, it absolutely, you know, starts with an inside job uh, yeah. within ourselves. Um, and it's almost more than being average. It's again, thinking that this is the way it has to be because this is the way it is. It's that mm -hmm. when I say 
um, sort of being held hostage to the prevailing worldview. It's like we have to remember, like, no, no, it does not have to be this way. Uh, we are the humans uh, on the earth. This is our planet. You know, we need agency. We need to make that change. And so more and more and more people are having these kinds of conversations and it's happening. Yeah, it is. And and it isn't stopping, which leads right into my next question, because I, I love... <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this this saying at the end of this question too. So what would you suggest for people who want to push positive change forward, but they, they're not like really sure where to start? Maybe they're a little overwhelmed. And if I may quote you, how do we get on the clue train? <laughs> I love that. The clue. How do we get how do we get on the clue train, Eli? Yo, let me take you to <laughs> church, yeah. sister. Take me. <laughs> Be on that platform. <laughs> Look at none of this is my own thinking. Okay, <laughs> I'm just sort of channeling everything I've ever read. So look at you. Um, you get started by treating it like you're looking for a job because you are. You're essentially looking for work on the Renaissance clue train. Okay, <laughs> so let me break that down for you. Like I want everybody to just think like, oh my God, you're right. Like uh, this is like looking for a job. You're looking for a job in the daisy chain of humanity. So first, clue train comes from the Clue Train Manifesto that was published on the internet in 1999, okay? And it was this groundbreaking treatise of 95 statements reminding everyone that human beings were the divine power in the networked conversations or markets of the interweb. It is when the internet came up and all these cool people, and I happen to know them because we were working at the Berkman Center at Harvard on all this cool stuff, came out with the clue train manifesto. <laughs> I love and that. so you know, it was brilliant and you should uh, google it uh, online and you'll find it i want to put a it, link it, to it. that in this podcast and the totally. show notes i'm going to put a link to the clue train manifesto i just want yeah oh it is brilliant and it's like it's like the bible but it began something like and i'm kind of doing this off the top of my head here we are not seats or eyeballs or end users or consumers we are human beings and our reach exceeds your grasp this is our world this is our place to be people of earth remember <laughs> something to do it was just brilliant and it was reminding people like when the interweb you know t thinks it's taken over like remember like whoa 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 and you see the colossal mess that got made with the internet and now you have a whole group of beautiful brilliant people reimagining web 3.0 yeah. and they're going back to this notion of you know the clue train manifesto but applying that to our work today <laughs> <laughs> so you know, our world has been appropriated and we want a job getting it back. That's the nature of your question, right? So what do you do when you look for a job? You know, you spit shine your CV of experience <laughs> and interests. Then you look for places that need people like you. Then you network the hell out of everyone you know, right? It's, it's no different here. So, you know, people... Uh, I encourage you to spend time thinking about what you bring to the renaissance in terms of your skills and passion. 
explore the SDGs and notice which ones resonate with you internally. Like when do you get a little vibe? Is it when you look at education or gender parity or food scarcity or racial justice or climate action, whatever. It's like the 17 goals are like 17 different companies, you know, to choose right. from. And so think about whether you're drawn to local efforts or more global efforts. Then learn the players in this space. I mean, this is like what I did. I read every book and blog. I listened to podcasts. I attended webinars. I built lists on LinkedIn and Twitter and people can go in and follow. I have this massive list of SDG and social impact people um, and engage with them. People in this space are accessible, but you build your network just like you do when you're getting a job and connect, connect, connect. And then you make it clear you want to get involved. Ask how you can help. Believe me, everybody in this space yeah. needs help. So you yeah. find your place, you take up your trowel or your token, whatever it is, and you get to work and you don't overthink it right? And those of us in the space, you know, we know we're building the clue train track as we're running it, you know? And, and, <laughs> but that's and, what's so exciting about it. And frustrating and scary, yeah. but you know, it, it's the way it happens and it's not linear. And impact work is is far more of like a, a radial outworking of all hands on deck, you know? And, and back to that sound of silence, it's 10,000 people, maybe more, acting as illuminators you know, shining the light on the track. And, and we do not need more leaders. We need more illuminators. So everybody just become an illuminator. Yeah. And if that is a little too abstract, I will give a plug for um, Dave Bollier's wonderful publication called The Commoner's Catalog for Changemaking. It's, it's a brilliant collection of examples of what he calls commoning or um, groups of people applying their imagination and collective power to build new possibilities. And it's a whole catalog, okay? It's like a social universe of wow. real projects that are out there. To hear the passion in your voice, I mean, oh, love it. Well, there's so many people. I mean, I have the blessed good fortune. I mean, I talk to people in this space all the time and i'm yeah. telling you and we need each other to upbuild mm -hmm. each other because it's easy to feel like you're alone and especially with covid and we're all working at home and yeah. all that it's so easy to feel isolated but i gotta tell you there's not just ten thousand people out there there's millions of people yeah. in this space and people should feel excited about that feel like um the future is in good hands and it's going to be in our hands you know and everyone just has to kind of get on board the clue train man yeah, get on, get on board the clue train. Okay. Yeah, we need a song. Yeah. We need a song. Oh yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> I probably shouldn't be singing it, but you know what? Okay, I'm just putting a challenge out there to the daughters of change listening because I know I have some fantastic musicians that listen to this podcast. So we need a song about getting on the clue train. Oh, we so do. just throw it out there. If you're interested <laughs> in working on that song, you let me and Eli know. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Totally. I mean, imagine a universal song that wouldn't was that put be out so there. cool. Okay. Yes. So, all right. So see, just right here, brainstorming. There you go. If you want to yeah. work on that song, you let us know because we'll put that on the track somewhere. Totally. Yeah, yeah, for oh, sure. Right on. And Beautiful. is every solution that we need already here, Eli? 
you know, it is. Look, we know what we have to do right, and we have what we need to do it. We have intellect, we have agency, we have each other. Uh, you know, and, and in a way, right now, doing less is doing more. You know, less consumption, mm -hmm. less pollution, less growth, less force. Yep. And above everything, less bullshit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it, like, we do not need some new technology. It's about getting more people to have the will and to exercise, you know, their will. You know, we cannot force change. We can't force people to change, but we can create these iterative disturbances, right, that lead to new behaviors. Yeah and new societal structures. It does happen. It's happened in the past. We just need it faster and on a bigger scale now yeah. if we're going to not, you know, go up in smoke before midnight. Um, but, and these disturbances are happening, you know, more and more often in, in good and bad ways. You know, COVID mm -hmm. was like, look at how fast, you know, that happened and how quickly we were able to respond. But you see it in Black Lives Matter and uh, the Me Too movement and in climate strikes, um, it's, you're going to love this. It's probably a good time for me to talk about one of my other favorite words. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> I love words. I um, can't wait to hear oh, it. It's consilience. Oh, it's a beauty. You know, I, like that I know. And I don't know if you knew E.O. Wilson. He recently uh, passed. He was this brilliant biologist. And he wrote about consilience uh, in terms of the agreement between seemingly different approaches to a topic, um, like science and the humanities, but more broadly, consilience is about linking together principles from different disciplines in order to form a cohesive theory or a shared vision. And so we need more consilience in the Renaissance on the clue train. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. There you go. There's our collaboration. <laughs> oh my God! Do you hear that, Congress? Do you hear that, Washington D.C.? Well, and, and it goes. <laughs> the beauty of consilience, yeah. though, is it goes beyond collaboration to say. You know, there is a dialectic. We have different viewpoints. We have different yeah. approaches. Consilience is the art and science and mastery of bringing the best of those together in order to form something even better, a cohesive or a shared vision. And uh, to your point, if Congress could uh, do that, uh, we'd be a lot better off. But like all of us, right. in, in our families, in our workplaces, you know, wherever, let's, you know, put out this new language, right? Because it causes people to pause and take notice and think maybe anew about their world. So that's why I love language yeah. and sometimes new words. I do too, because I think that sometimes it's not what we say, it's how we say it. And mm -hmm. and then words become buzzwords and they become associated right. with, um, you know, with bad vibes for some people or whatever. And then you can't even have a conversation around it. But if you can do this, oh, yeah. I love it. Okay, so we're going to have a whole new... Then there, when you get on the clue train, there will be a dictionary with some new words. And the clue train is called the Regenesance. Right the on, Traveling Regenesance, right? Oh, it's I, I know. Love we're it. gonna, I know. And we're oh, maybe the Traveling Wilburys will do the there song. There you go. Oh, my God. Right? 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 Oh, my God. Do you know... Okay, you're going to love this, too. Do you know the word lead... The root word of lead is to travel. <gasps> and so we want to travel, right? We just want to travel in a new direction and in a new way. We want to yeah. take leaders out of leadership <laughs> yeah. and, and substitute them with people yeah. who want to travel together 
So yeah, yeah, exactly. We're gonna do that. And and you know, yeah, oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited <laughs> already. I just like I, I want to be born again so I can start. <laughs> Like not you born. Know, again. I'm not born again. I don't want to be born again. Not that there's anything wrong with being born again, but I don't, I don't mean that a religious connotation. I mean I want to actually literally like be born again. I, I know, but you know, C.S. Lewis, another one of my favorite authors, he, isn't he the one who said, you know, we may not be able to redo the beginning, but we can start here and redo yeah. the end. And so yeah. that's what people need to just think about. It's like okay, right. so you haven't done X, Y, or Z, whatever, whatever. But in the moment of consciousness, you know. No, you start now and then you are going to change your ending you're going to change you know somebody else's ending and we collectively have to change our our human ending you know so we have to have a beginning or a continuance exactly so it doesn't exactly end. <laughs> and you know that brings to mind a story you told me because it is about like change and morphing and beginnings and new things and beauty you told me this really really beautiful account of imaginal cells. And I'm just going to leave the question there and let you talk about what that is and the context around that, because just think about that. Oh, it's such a beautiful concept. And I first encountered it in Kim Pullman's book. Kim is uh, Paul Pullman's wife. And she wrote this beautiful book called Imaginal Cells, Visions of Transformation. And so imaginal cells are dormant cells in caterpillars that become active when it's time to metamorphosize it into a butterfly. And in her words, these imaginal cells hold the vision of the butterfly. So according to science, when it's time to change, the imaginal cells send out a signal to other imaginal oh. cells. This is, oh. Oh, wait, 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 okay, hear me out. They find each other, they <gasps> form clusters, and they collude to bring down the resistant caterpillar cells in order to bring forward the butterfly. And so it's a perfect metaphor for our work today. You know, the caterpillar yeah. cells represent the old system of greed and linear economics and self-interest that resist change to the better way of inclusivity and regenerative economics and equality, right? And all that good stuff. But they also remind us that we cannot do this alone. We cannot fix, you know, the world by ourselves. And so imaginal cells do not act alone. They actually unite around a shared vision, right, in order to affect the change. And so similarly, our unified, synchronized activities, no matter on what level, they will bring about global change as long as we hold the line. And it's like uh, what Howard Zinn said, you know, small acts when multiplied by millions of people can transform the world. It's known as the multiplier or the butterfly effect. There you go. It's sometimes also known as Greta Thunberg. But it's right. So I, it's just a, a, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful uh, metaphor and framework for us all to work in. And the important thing is like to be listening to the frequency because it's going out and it breaks through the the unconsciousness. Right. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's the yeah. fuel for the clue train. Right on. And Eli, what are you most proud of? You know, uh, of course, I'm going to have to say it's uh, being a mother and being humbled by the responsibility for another life. 
Um, but it really embodies everything we've just talked about because raising a child is only one of life's ways of teaching us about the cycle of life and the interconnectedness of life and the transcendent responsibility of ensuring future life, right? Um, and I'll also be honest with you, uh, for me, going to the crucible with an adopted, very trauma-based child who hit adolescence and didn't want to live anymore in this world, yeah, was uh, really like being struck by lightning. And uh, I am very proud and happy to say she is still here, a very sassy 16-year-old daughter of change. I love that. Um, Right. Oh, she's such a Norma Ray. Uh, I totally ah. love her. Uh, but because our family was open to change, you know, the lightning turned our sort of brokenness into uh, what we consider like a beautiful kintsugi bowl where, you know, now the gold-filled cracks are enduring reminders, both of our fragility, but also of our resilience. Yeah. And so as we, you know, think about our own lives, there's just so much resonance with our lives, with what the world is going through. But anyway, that whole experience and, you know, going on, uh, confronting, uh, life and death and all of that was yeah. uh, terrifying, but just incredibly, um, you know, enriching, thankfully, and, and positive experience. So, yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah. And thriving on the other side, right? She How cool is, is that? Yeah, she's doing great. It was a really, really rough ride, but so, so many people and so yeah. many of our young people are, are troubled. And so uh, if anyone is going through that, first of all, uh, reach out, happy to talk about our experience. Um, we found the right places, the right people, and the right resources to kind of get us all through it. Uh, but one of the scariest, most difficult yeah. things I've ever been through. But what we have to ask ourselves, what is happening where so many people are wanting to not live anymore yeah. you know, yeah. in this world? Yeah, the young people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. Mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. And what wise words do you, not that all your words today haven't been wise. Let me just back up before I ask this question. <laughs> Everything you've said today has been wise. But what special wise words do you have for the other daughters of change out there listening today? Oh, I would say every day take up the work with gratitude and with grit. Uh, stay open, stay undefended, so that the real work of healing this world from the inside gets done. You know, try not to leak energy, but to use your life force as an illuminator or as an imaginal cell. You know, walk in the world as daughters of change, but also as mothers of change. You know, bringing along the light bearers who come after. And you know, when a sister is tired, hold her light, hold her place on the line as she will hold yours. I mean, our purpose is to hold down the goddamn line until this old system of things heaves its last breath and we feel the flutter of new wings on our cheeks. Amen, right? Do I get uh, an amen up here? Oh, honey. Like, right? Amen. Ladies, oh, hold do. the line and hold yeah. it down for each other, man. We, we need yeah. each other. That's yeah. beautiful. And, you know, you do have a way with words and something, Eli, that we didn't mention in the <laughs> intro. And I thought maybe we would talk about it um, at the beginning, but we didn't, is the fact that you're also a poet. And so I am going to ask you a gigantical, <laughs> huge favor. And I am going to ask you if you would close out this podcast with a piece of your poetry. Oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> well, you're astonishing to, to even ask uh, me that, and I've never really done this before, but um, thank you. I, I, I do have something I would love to share, but before I do, I want to say one last thing. You know, we, we bring about the world. It does not happen to us. We make choices, we act or we don't act, but both have consequences. And the Greeks called this phenomenon poesis, which is the root word for poetry, which is why I bring it up. And poesis means to bring something into being that did not exist before. You know, it carries the essence of creativity and culture and civilization itself. And so, you know, we need people to embrace poesis. We need people to bring a part of themselves that did not exist before into being. So um, I, I sort of lay that out as an intro to my poem, and uh, in terms of uh, context, I always like to give context to poems when I do uh, readings. You know how um, singers get up there and they always tell you, I was driving down the road and smoking a cigarette, <laughs> and, and I was thinking about it, and they give you the story behind the poem, and for some reason <laughs> poets don't, and I find that quite irritating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sort of, I don't know, esoteric. But anyway, so in 2019, I was in a week-long workshop with Richard Blanco, who it was Obama's inauguration poet. And so he asked us to write a commemorative poem. And it was, an, it was a daunting task, like, you know, write the kind of poem that he wrote, you know, for Obama. And it took me the better part of a year to do. But I chose the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in 2020. And I wrote one stanza for each of the 10 decades between 1920 and 2020. And had COVID not interfered, I would have had the privilege of reading this poem at one of the many celebrations intended that year. Uh, well, 10 stanzas is way too much for right now, but I chose two that depict the 1930s, so think Great Depression, and the 2020s, think uh, Great Hope. And so I think you'll understand why I chose these particular stanzas for Daughters of Change. And so the poem is called One Uprise. One Uprise, 1930s. Take your shoes off, the dusty weights that fasten you to butter-worn roads, to factories laced with handmade machines spilling out our needs, these leather-soled vessels carried the grapes of our wrath when we were too depressed to eat, held their ground when it came time to decide what to take, what to leave behind. You have stood in these shoes, take them off. 2020s. We briny empathies carry our shoes that our feet may tell a truer story. Singular, disparate, remarkable, and cruel, scoring the bedrock with our souls salting the earth with our tears, dressing the wounds of our bloodlines. We, the sinewed bows, spine and muscle of earth's curvature, bend our ravens home, portending their sway upward. We are one uprise. Thank you. Thank you.